miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast tonight. A star witness for the defense in the Manassian murder trial has pulled this unprecedented move telling the judge the rules of how he'll conduct his testimony. I'll tell you how he got away with it. It's unheard of. Small businesses outraged over the latest shutdowns, which clearly are picking winners and losers. And Global News goes in-depth and investigation into what went wrong in Ontario long-term care. Maybe we should be asking, what didn't go wrong? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. I just do not ever believe in changing a dance partner in the middle of a dance, especially when he's an incredible dancer. Like, like Dr. Dr. Williams, he's a great doctor. Uh, and I give uh, Dr. Williams, Dr. Yaffe, and the whole, I could list off all the doctors, I'm not going to. I give them all the credit in giving us guidance. Yeah, it's no John Travolta, but of course the Premier's going to dance with the one who brung him. But it may be actually time to waltz Dr. Williams off to retirement, uh, you think? Alex Pearson here with you, and we are on Monday, November 23rd. Holy, uh, 27 days until Santa. Hope you had a great weekend, a good weekend, a sane weekend, some kind of weekend, as we uh, complete day one of of day one of 28 in lockdown. You know, we've got record cases. And I actually thought over the weekend, someone should have invent, you know, in, invented an advent calendar for this stretch, you know, where each day you get something to cope. Maybe a Valium on one day, you get a, a drink on another straight jacket for the big prize at the end. Something to survive. A good little way to make some cash. Maybe you had one of those weekends where you were uh, out running around like a chicken with our head cut off. Holy, it was crazy on the weekend. I avoided the crush, of course, last week because I had a feeling. My Kreskin senses said there's going to be a shutdown and a toilet paper run. So I, I did all that stuff before the weekend, but had to do a couple of small errands. And it was like the December 24th crush. And the malls were packed, packed. Not that I went to one, but you you know, you go by the parking lot of Yorkdale and it was packed. You go by Costco, Home Depot, the lineups were all the way around the block. And, you know, here we are locking down, but it's really hard to see how this is protecting us and not turning into a massive super spreader event. But I don't think a lot of things about this shutdown actually do make sense. I mean, as as many have rightfully pointed out, why is it that the big stores, you know, where hundreds gather safer than a small business that has just a handful of people they can better control? And it shouldn't be a secret. I'm not in favor of shutting any business down at all. But again, you hear that Hudson Bay can open. And what's essential there? I love their blankets. I have one. I consider it a, an essential part of my household. But if they can open, why can't a small business? I mean, let's just be honest. We're picking winners and losers. And it's, it's not just about fair. It's not backed up by data. None of these decisions are. And for small businesses, and we've said this a number of times, these are weeks before Christmas. And, you know, you've got Black Friday next, uh, this Friday. And, and these are lost sales. This is life and death for these businesses because they can't make margins if they don't cash in now. And so, of course, they've got to sell off the merchandise they bought in the fall. I mean, if they knew that they weren't going to be able to sell their merchandise, I bet half these retailers wouldn't have ordered half of it. 
you know? So I'm like, oh, how can we make them essential? Maybe they should just start bringing in baskets of fruits and veggies. Get some toilet paper. Hey, you've just made yourself essential because it's just, it's so unfair. And then you wonder, like, how is this an actual shutdown? Because it's going to slow things down, maybe. It's not going to stop the virus from reigniting. You know, people are still going to the office. You've got the kids in school. Uh, we're still allowed to have weddings. You can go to a place of worship. Caregivers and nannies uh, can still come to your home. But, you know, the worst part of it is that we're still allowing thousands of essential workers. And I'm not saying they're the problem. We're letting them in and out of the country. No checks, no balances, no tracing, no testing. So they're not, they're not even being protected. And then you've got dozens of international flights from hot zones. They land daily at Pearson. So how are we being protected by international folks flooding into the GTA? You know, uh, are, we, are we protecting people by shutting down the flower shop at the end of the street? I mean, give me a break. But let's just say, you know, we can slow the numbers down in 28 days. Okay, we've done that. And then we open back up. What do you think happens? Well, we get mad rush of people flooding into the malls to get gifts and presents and do all the things they couldn't do in the last couple of, you know, weeks. And apparently Dr. Williams kind of seemed to clue into that today. I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's a very good point. Um, easing off just when all the, everybody just wants to burst out and do some of the other activities. I think we're really encouraging people and we hope to have some announcements later this week on what is our recommendations for the uh, holiday seasons that are coming up? Um, how should we ask ourselves to adapt to a COVID Hanukkah, COVID Christmas, uh, COVID New Year, if you may? I, I think you raise a very good point because if we uh, go off the rails, as you're alluding to, and go into a lot of um, contacts, breaking down all the social distancing and that, uh, we could see quite a big upswing of our numbers uh, into the new year. I think you're right. It would be risky to lift it at that time. So we're going to have to be very careful if we're going to consider anything uh, in three or four weeks. Hmm, picking up what he's putting down. You think this thing's over in 28 days? Not a chance in hell. Merry COVID Hanukkah. Merry COVID Christmas. Merry COVID Kwanzaa. Merry COVID Easter. Merry COVID everything. We're just never going to see the end of it. But I was, uh, you know, I was thinking today because I was driving through the downtown and, and um, you know, you look around as you're driving and the city's just, I can only speak for Toronto because where I live. Hey, everywhere you go, just close signs, lease signs, papered windows. And if, if you don't like gentrification, you're, you're going to be horrified by the calamity the second shutdown causes. I mean, I was stunned and, and, and more so saddened by just how many businesses are gone. Unique businesses. You know, you go down to a place like Queen West, it's unique businesses with lots of personality, you know, uh, something different. You know, the mom-pop shops, the tattoo parlors, the, um, the little boutique that sells cute little kitschy stuff, whatever. And it's what makes communities unique, whether it's Queen West or anywhere else, the Danforth, wherever, where, you know, downtown, Hamilton, wherever you are. And once those unique stores are gone. It's just going to be a Tim Hortons and a Costco. Those box stores that have nothing, no spirit, no nothing. And then, of course, you look around and uh, an alarming number of tent cities that have just taken over really big, very popular parks with no end in sight. And it's like they've become a thing. 
So yeah, there's costs to these lockdowns and we're just starting to see them all over the place, not just businesses, uh, job loss, food bank use surging, suicides up, domestic violence rates up, addiction, opiate deaths, you know, it's adding up. And we got some good news today, okay? We got good news on another vaccine coming to market. It is exciting, but then it's it's tempered by the reality that we are months from getting it. So, you know, we can't just keep locking things down. We've actually got to learn to live with this thing and be smart about this thing because it's exhausting. It's draining. You know, we have given up a lot and we did it willingly, you know, and I think a lot of people are rightfully very frustrated. You know, you see the numbers exploding again after all we sacrificed and it's it's hard not to be frustrated. It's hard not to be fed up. It's getting much harder to buy into the warnings. You know, the fact that a lot of us are not going to be able to see loved ones over the holidays is just ridiculous. I haven't seen my family in months, just like you. I haven't seen my sister in the U.S. for a year. I haven't seen my family in Hamilton in months. I mean, that for a lot of people is is impossible. It's a big ask. So the hurt's real and the frustration's growing. But, the, you know, but what puzzles me is something that the Ford government decided today they put forward a motion and they're going to extend dr williams terms because he's set to expi- uh, expire sorry retire in uh, the spring which i'd say hey happy retirement you've certainly earned it and look i think he's a very smart guy i think he's very dedicated i think uh, he's probably a likable fella but he's a, not a good communicator he's just not and during sars the late dr sheila brasur rest her soul um, and the other experts, which did include Dr. Yaffe, they managed the, the message so precisely every single day. They brought calm. They brought clarity in a time when there was a growing chaos because we knew nothing about SARS in 2003. And they seamlessly took us through this threat. And, you know, they gave calm, but what they gave more so is confidence. And I know Ford's loyal to Williams, but, you know, here we are nine months in and folks just aren't buying what he's selling. I learned many years ago, don't criticize until you've walked a mile in someone's shoes. And it's easy easy to, to criticize when you aren't deep, deep into it. And the, the endless decisions that Dr. Williams and his team has to make every single day uh, and results, uh, they say everything. I, I, you know, I always say I, I measure everything. And uh, again, this is this is nothing to brag about, but we're still the lowest cases in North America for any region our, our size. So I have all the confidence in, in Dr. Williams. He's doing a great job. That, that may be. I mean, it's also easy to lose perspective when you're spinning in the blender. You know, sometimes you can lose sight. So I'm not sure that maybe a new set of eyes on this might maybe it helps. And the motion, of course, did not get unanimous consent. So it will now go to a debate and then a vote before any extensions made. And uh, by the way, I also think uh, Dr. Davila should also be waltzed out. Maybe she can go into selling scarves. Uh, Dr. Tam should just go anywhere. Just go to the UN. Go wherever you want because you're, you're not helping us here. And uh, it's clear that you've got other ambitions. But nonetheless, uh, I'd say goodbye to a few of them at this point. And do a, if you want to do a great reset, how about we start there? 
All right, good to have you here with us on this Monday. And uh, the Alec Manassian trial has been put on hold for a couple of days for legal arguments, but there's been an interesting twist in the last couple of days and an unprecedented demand made and then granted. And it involves the most important witness for the defense. This is a doctor who will support the claim that his autism prevented him from knowing the difference between right and wrong. And he's refusing to testify unless Justice Malloy guarantees that the video he has of the accused never see the light of day. And uh, not only is it unheard of to have a witness basically hold a judge, you know, uh, to demand of anything. It just doesn't happen. That crucial evidence isn't made public because of a witness demand. And in its original form, or almost unheard of, we are always, as the media, able to show, for the most part, what you, you know, goes on in a courtroom. And the evidence we're talking about is a number of video recordings of this doctor and Mr. Manassian describing the attacks in excruciating and very uncomfortable detail. Lauren Honickman of our Global News Radio criminal law expert team joining us now with this. And um, to say that Justice Malloy is not happy, I don't, I mean, she was offended, what she called a ransom demand, but she reluctantly agreed to it because like she had no, no choice, but it's unheard of. It is unheard of. And so just so everybody understands, since 1994, a very important case that came out of the Supreme Court of Canada, the open court principle has been constitutionally protected. It's, it's your right. It's my right. It's not the media's rights. It's the public's right to know what's going on inside a courtroom, especially inside a trial like this. Now, many times there will be applications for publication bans at various times or sealing orders, but nothing like this. And not surprisingly, the, the media argued vehemently against this sealing order. And Justice Malloy, she called it a ransom demand. She called mm -hmm. it offensive. Mm -hmm. uh, she said, I made an analogy of a gun to my head. Um, yeah. and, and, but she felt that she had absolutely no choice but to acquiesce to the request. Why? Because of where this doctor lives in the United States. And so right. if he lived anywhere in Canada, um, and, and certainly anywhere in, in this jurisdiction, she would have the right, and, and most certainly I'm sure she would act immediately uh, to get that, that particular doctor brought to the courtroom. Uh, but she can't do that. And so what did she say to herself when she looked at it? She said, this is the most important piece of evidence, apparently, for the defense. If I do not give in to this, then the defense doesn't have that evidence, and she used the words, I might as well go right to sentencing, because right. the case is over. So she felt that she had absolutely no choice but to acquiesce. And of course, it's, it, it sets, I, I, you know, we don't even want to talk about the precedent that it sets, um, but hopefully, and I think most certainly, this case will be carved out as somewhat in the extreme and hopefully it'll never happen again. Um, the, the key part will be, of course, what will the media be able to report if and when, I guess, this doctor decides now that he got his request, mm -hmm. uh, testifies. And, and, and what does that mean and how much can be reported and what vid how much of the video are, will the media be able to watch, etc.? Uh, so far, we don't know how that's going to go. 
Yeah, I mean, the only other case that I can can think of would be the Paul Bernardo trial, the Bernardo trial, where you had this extraordinary video, and back in your yeah. days, certainly, of covering this. It was not played for the public, per se. It was not played for the gallery, as I understand it. It was played for the jury, and then it was destroyed, as, as you recall, a number of years later. Um, that, however, was done not at the discretion or the demands of a witness. No. And that was that was different. That at that time, um, Justice Lesage made the decision that that the public uh, in the courtroom was not going to be able to see the video. The the uh, the monitors were turned around. People heard what mm-hmm. what was on there. The jury saw it. Unfortunately for them, of course. But at the end of the day, no. This it had nothing to do with a witness saying, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to come here. And and he put out this particular witness set out what I understand all of these different reasons as to why it wasn't just a matter of him saying, well, you know, I, I really don't want this to be out. He, uh, he brought forward apparently reasons uh, that, um, that it could be very dangerous if, if, the, uh, if the public were able to have access uh, to the actual video. And, uh, and so, he said, quote, I'm deeply concerned about the effects that negative stereotypes illustrated by the footage would have on the lives and the lives of their family. And don't really know what that means, but that's the type of thing he put forward. And um, so, you know, and in fact, Justice Malloy even said um, that in a different manner, uh, matter, she said a police officer to collect a reluctant witness and yeah. bring him to court. But of course, because of the border, that makes it impossible now. So, it, well, well, in Canada, you know, in a, a witness refusing would be someone held in contempt of court, and she would, right. you know, issue a warrant. That person would be arrested. But yeah, they do have very different rules, and it's so weird that he's got such a problem with this because if this were happening in an American court, they have TV cameras in American courts. Their jurors Indian speak them, yes. to the public. I mean, their courts are so transparent. It's odd to think that he has such an issue with the Canadian courts, which are so yeah. so much more. Restrained. It's interesting because I always used to argue that the words publication ban never go together in a sentence in the United States. I don't think they know what that is. Uh, You're absolutely correct. And of course, people have to understand, and you you might say to yourself, okay, well, what's the big deal? Is it just because the media, you know, wants to print and and publish all the salacious debt? No, everybody, everybody has to understand this case is going to hinge, as mm-hmm. we talked about it last week, on the testimony, the mm-hmm. expert psychiatric testimony. This man is the key witness, the key witness, not, uh, not just one of them, the key witness with respect to whether or not Mr. Manassian appreciated the nature and consequences of his act. So that's the evidence that's going to be so important. And somebody may say, what does it matter as long as Justice Malloy gets to see it all? But you, what people forget when they think that way is that, no, this is an open court, and it's an open court for very, very important reasons. And that's why that principle is constitutionally protected. It's in Right, and it would be... Certainly, it would be a problem if all of a sudden Justice Malloy came back and said, well, not criminally responsible. Then everyone would say, well, how could she come to that? Well, That's we right. don't know you because know you didn't I, see. I can't tell you. <laughs> yeah. you know, I can't tell you because this doctor didn't want you to understand what he was saying, etc. So it's going to be very interesting. Um, and 
interesting in this way, because uh, what we don't know yet is how Justice Malloy, now that she's made this decision, and, and you, you sort of look at it and you say, okay, well, what was the alternative? What will be the process for the media and members of the public to, to report on it? So that's going to be the key for her now to somehow, it's not going to be the same, obviously, yeah. but somehow find a bit of a balance here to ensure that the public gets the information it needs. Well, in other words, uh, you know, the video will be transcribed for the media probably, and then they can kind of give the reenactment and the wording. God, if we don't get that, then there's a serious, serious problem. I would think that, yeah, exactly. But then I would be, as the Crown, you you would have big grounds to appeal, but it certainly brings into question um, what can happen. And and moving forward, if, if a big case had an expert, let's say, from the United States, I don't know why there's not an expert up here in Canada that can do this kind of... Uh, particular work, but it would certainly bring into question, you know, if we're allowed to use, you know, witnesses in other jurisdictions outside of Canada, um, you know, if that then, I guess, puts all that into question. Right. And and, and again, I, I, I don't think you should, you, there's nothing untowards with, with finding an expert from a different jurisdiction. That that literally does happen. It all happens the all the time. It's just when yeah, they start and, calling and the shots. <laughs> I just, yeah, and, but I've never heard of this before um, where where an expert has come forward and starts talking about the concern, uh, you know, if the video of his, of his um, interaction with an accused is somehow played to the public. And, 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 you know, you normally you would want to get evidence on that. What does that mean? But, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, my feeling is, and maybe I'm wrong, that this will be a one-off, and hopefully it will be a, a one-off, but hopefully we as, as well will be able to get the information that we need at the end of the day. And it, is, and it won't be like you just said, Alex, that if, it, if by some chance she found him not criminally responsible, and people would have to throw their hands up in the air and go, well, how come that happened that way? Yeah, well, certainly it raises more questions and more brings more attention. Certainly makes you think, well, gee, what's this guy got to hide? But uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'm uh, suspecting that probably the delays that we're dealing with now are in uh, probably directly linked to this particular portion of the um, evidence. But nonetheless, we'll stay tuned and see how they uh, decide to yeah, um, parse out the the coverage. Of it. Sure, is not the one that I'd want to be telling how to run her courtroom. Um, Lauren, thank you very much. My pleasure. The quicker we can get through this, the quicker we can get this vaccine out there, uh, then we can get people uh, back and, and open up. Premier Ford pretty much today saying really the only way uh, small business owners can ever get back to business is when this vaccine arrives. That's not uh, giving a lot of hope because it's not a guarantee. But without question, I think the latest shutdown is uh, picking winners and losers. So if you're a big box store, then you're going to have a great winter. You're a big winner. And if you've poured your life and sweat into creating a small business, then you're either left to fight for your life or pray for a miracle that never seems to arrive. Fair? Not a chance. Are we in this together? I hate this saying and I wish we'd stop saying it because it is absolutely unequivocally untrue, especially when these business owners are being punished for something that is so completely out of their control. I want to bring George Bozikis into this conversation. He is president and CEO of Unique Hospitality. He joins me now. Good to have you, George. Nice to be here. 
You built your business over a couple of de- uh, decades and you do event management. So things like red carpet um, in events, uh, VIP fashion events, media events, corporate functions. So all the kinds of things you do have probably been hit the hardest since this thing arrived on our shores. Absolutely. Uh, we're obviously shut down. I employ 70 to 80 people. That's 70 to 80 people that are now unemployed right before the holidays. I can tell you it's going to be a very black Christmas for many people this year. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. Never mind uh, things like Film Fest and all the summer events that would be going on. This is, I mean, if you're in the event business, especially around the holidays, every weekend is marked with a party, a an event, uh, New Year's celebrations. There's so much going on at this time of year. None of that's happening. This is actually the Super Bowl in our industry. The, we Everybody waits year-round for the middle of November till the end of December, and we'll make a substantial amount, probably 40%, 30 to 40% of our money in a month and a half. Uh, it's not happening this year. Besides the fact it's not happening, the lucky people will get a chance to try again. And that number is very small. The majority of the people will not reopen. What are you facing right now? I mean, we are in the second shutdown. I don't get the sense if I'm, uh, you know, really being honest with myself that this is only going to last 28 days. I mean, there's just so much instability around the decision making. Uh, what do you face as we head into 2021? Can you hold on? Look, we have no choice but to try to hold on. And the, the operative word is to try. Uh, we in the restaurant industry, in the hospitality business, we have already gone through 28 days and a week and now it's an additional 28 days and the operative word here is a minimum of 28 days Mm -hmm. i believe we're not going to reopen at least toronto till mid-january at the earliest and at the end of the day people are congregating at their home Uh, if the mayor thinks people are not going to get together for christmas he's crazy and what you said earlier we're not together the day the mayor decides to forego his salary, his pension, forego paying mortgage payments, rents, then we're in it together. Until that happens, we're not in this together. I mean, this has to be a a mix of emotions of uh, frustration, anger, devastation, sadness, um, you know, stress. There are so many things going through the minds of people like yourself uh, all over the place. Every time we talk about businesses, they're kind of just, they become inanimate objects of just bricks and mortars. But I mean, there's a lot of suffering going on. Well, if someone can explain to me how dining in a tent that is not properly ventilated that is a fire hazard by having propane tanks heating a tent is any safer than a controlled environment of a dining room. I'm waiting to listen because they're not. They're actually more dangerous and the spread of COVID is much more real in a tent. Have any of these aid programs, be it, you know, the ones from the start that were uh, somewhat flawed and very slow in rolling out, even to the one that has finally uh, been reissued uh, with the rent subsidies uh, today, they came out. Have any of them been able to help you? Look, any any little bit helps and every little bit helps. But at the end of the day, I tried going into the rent subsidy today. Uh, something doesn't make sense in the calculation. I think there's a flaw in the calculation. Um, but all we can do is is, is keep trying. I, I feel well, I've been very successful for 25 years. Everything I've done 
is a total of 25 years of sweat labor. And at the end of the day, I feel like I'm a charity case waiting for the government to bail me out. The feeling is not great. Do you feel like they're picking winners and losers here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Not to mention names. Um, there's a lot of violation of, of, of government policy as far as opening dining rooms and opening events. And uh, bylaw enforcement's not out there. I mean, what all I'm saying is, if we really think it's that bad, then I hate to say the province needs to close down. But at the end of the day, I live in Markham. I can go out and dine in Markham. I can't in Toronto. So what does the new year then look for you? Look like for you? Because even when we get through this wave, we still have to wait for a vaccination. And even that is still months away. I mean, I don't think people like you or the hospitality industry, sadly, they, they won't be thought of as essential. Well, you know, t- Toronto is one of the premier cities in, in Canada it, and really in the world. It, it, Toronto's a thriving Mecca, although uh, not today. I think, uh, we're going to be driving down many streets in Toronto, and we're going to see a lot of boarded-up windows, signs for rent. Uh, the, the city's got a long way to go to, re- to, to recover, and, and I don't believe the recovery will be instantaneous. I, th- I think a lot of businesses will take many, many years to recover if they survive. What do you think is the most misunderstood um, you know, thing uh, going on with businesses, and, and what is the message then for those making these decisions? Well... They say if you think you've got COVID, you're quarantine for 14 days. So if I'm understanding correctly, the lifespan of COVID is about 14 to 20 days. The recovery rate is very, very high. Uh, not to take away from anybody that's passed from it. God bless. And, and, and my heart goes out to those families. But the psychological effect that this is having, suicides are up, domestic violence is up, uh, drug abuse is up, theft is up. The psychological effect, I think that's going to be three to four years of recovery. People that have worked all their lives and lost everything, people that can't make mortgage payments and losing their homes. I don't know what to say. I, I think Dr. Davila is very narrow-sided she's looking at the virus and not the residual effects the collateral damage well we're going to have that conversation with a doctor who is against the lockdowns in the next segment but you're right there are a lot of people making decisions that don't have to worry about getting their next paycheck and again i think that uh, often they forget what it would be like george we'll keep in touch with you and i appreciate you sharing your story because sadly uh, stories like yours are not unique anymore but they are very very real and i appreciate you opening up Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. That is uh, George Bozikis. Not a business, a person, a family, a employer who gives jobs to people. uh, And clearly, you know, as many others feeling extremely isolated and like they're in this completely alone, which they are. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, we turn our attention for the next couple of weeks to the holes the virus has exposed in our long-term care homes today versus, you know, what happened this past spring. How did COVID-19 kill more than 2,000 nursing home residents? Here's Jason Chapman with part one of Care Gone Wrong as we look inside Ontario's nursing homes. (laughs) 
Well, there is growing concern tonight for some of our most vulnerable. We are seeing outbreaks at numerous long-term care homes in Ontario. Most alarming is in Bob Cajun, where an outbreak is being described as a war zone. At Pinecrest Nursing Home, nine residents have died and at least 24 staff have contracted the virus. We were so afraid of what was going to happen and I would say our, our worst nightmare and possibly beyond that um, came true. Haunting words early in the pandemic from the Pinecrest Nursing Home's medical director. By early April, almost half of the home's 64 residents had died. The tragedy exposed a gross oversight in Ontario's response to COVID-19. We were seeing things happen in Bergamo, Italy, where there was hospital systems being overrun, uh, not enough ventilators. That really framed the Canadian response, this lopsided response, and said, this is how many ventilators we need. This is why we need to clear out our hospitals. This is what we need to do to get ready. But we forgot about this other huge sector in, in our society and our healthcare system called the long-term care sector, where in Ontario, over 70,000 people live. Nathan Stahl is a geriatrician at Mount Sinai Hospital. He spent much of the year studying how during the first wave, Eight out of every 10 COVID-19 deaths in Canada were connected to long-term care homes. You're taking the frailest adults, they live in congregate settings, and the settings they live in are often outdated and crowded. And then you're introducing a highly transmissible virus that is highly lethal. And that's in the setting of this lopsided response where all the preparedness and resources have been shunted to acute and critical care. So it was a perfect storm for just a disaster. And it wasn't until the middle of April that the province said, oh my God, um, let's start redirecting some of these resources to long-term care homes and let's try and address what was an out of control humanitarian crisis. March seems like it was yesterday, but also a lifetime ago. Each of us was trying to navigate our new normal as pandemic lockdowns took hold. We heard about hundreds dying in nursing homes, but what actually went wrong? Devorah Greenspawn explains how her world turned upside down. My whole life changed. I was like a bird with its wings cut. Before the pandemic, I was going to take a lecture series at U of T. The middle of March, all that changed. I was, well, locked in quotation marks in my room didn't see anybody except people wearing the long yellow gowns with masks with shields and their heads are covered that's when i knew we were in trouble when i saw people walking around my unit like that 12 residents died during the first wave in devora's home she understands why lockdowns were put in place but not why the restrictions stayed in place until the summer it was a really horrifying experience I think the one thing that kept me going was my family. When I would really feel like, oh, geez, I don't want to get up in the morning. Why do I want to get up in the morning? I have absolutely nothing to do. I may as well stay in bed with the covers over my head. And then I would think, 
my kids are not going to like that. They're going to be mad at their mother. <laughs> you got to get up and fight, mom. <laughs> and I think that really kept me going, you know. More than 2,000 seniors died in Ontario's nursing homes during the first wave. But how? With lockdowns in place, visitors weren't welcome in the homes. However, staff members came and went. And Dr. Nathan Stahl says those in charge failed to protect those employees. This is a workforce that's been under-recognized, underpaid, no full-time pay often. So they often live in the COVID hotspots in our cities and then are coming to work in these homes. Early on, they didn't have personal protective equipment. There's images of people wearing garbage bags to work. Orders to limit workers to one home, recognizing that they, that they could have contributed unknowingly to the spread, didn't come into effect until April 22nd uh, in our province. Then, the lockdown dragged on for months and months. In Ontario, we don't know if this isolation directly contributed to any long-term care deaths, but... One of the things that turned my head, reports from French physicians, they actually named it the confinement syndrome. And they said the confinement syndrome is probably more deleterious than COVID-19 itself. Even in Ontario, we had a resident who died of malnutrition. There were residents, their cognitive impairment accelerated so much, they didn't recognize their loved ones when the lockdown ended. I want them to know about the loneliness. A lot of people are feeling hopeless and helpless. That's the voice of Carolyn Snow. She lives in a nursing home in Keswick. During the first wave, there wasn't a single case of COVID reported in her home. Still, a lockdown was imposed and all regular programming was canceled. Carolyn says the loss of connection to the outside world had major impacts. I consider myself a fortunate person because I can FaceTime my family, my children and grandchildren. Most of our residents can't. Many of the people who were ambulatory are now in wheelchairs. A lot of their health has declined because they haven't had any stimulation and that sort of thing. For those on the outside looking in, the springtime was equally heart-wrenching. Kathy Parks lost her father in the second week of April. Her dad, Paul, died in a Pickering nursing home. A lack of communication is what frustrates Kathy more than anything. I was stumbling in the dark. I think a lot of us were. I knew my father was ill. I knew something was wrong. Hadn't been able to see him for weeks because of the lockdown and uh, communication was non-existent. Kathy fought hard to get her dad out of the home. His health was going downhill quickly and he wasn't getting the care he needed. April 14th was the last day she got to see her dad alive through a second floor window. And I had this overwhelming feeling that my dad needed me. So that's a hard one. That's why I don't talk about it. <laughs> um, I could actually feel almost like his hand grabbing mine. Um, so I did actually get to below his window and he had his own phone. I knew at that point that he things were really not okay because he was comatose and my dad was so full of life. And uh, yeah, that, that was the last time I got to see him and the last time I got to talk to him. Paul Parks died a few days later. Tragically, Dr. Nathan Stahl says this isn't a unique story. 
Communication was terrible in March and April. And Dr. Stahl wants to know why more nursing home residents weren't transferred to hospital early in the pandemic. So there was this unofficial triage that happened at the time where residents were really just left to die in their homes. And stories from families, there are letters from homes that went out that basically convinced them that there was no benefit to sending their loved one to hospital. There was never any triage that officially happened, but it unofficially happened in this situation. In the coming weeks, we'll ask government officials if they in fact triaged our seniors. We'll find out if it's possible to put an iron curtain around our nursing homes. And we'll explore how we can rely less and less on these homes moving forward. It's all coming up in our special series, Care Gone Wrong, Inside Ontario's Nursing Homes. For Global News, I'm Jason Chapman. Tomorrow, why are private companies running so many of Ontario's nursing homes? Who provides better care? We're talking about companies or the government. We'll talk about that coming up in part two of Care Gone Wrong as we look inside Ontario's nursing homes. You, of course, can listen to us Monday through Friday, 6.30, 10 live. I'm Alex Pearson. We'll do it again on point. This is Global News Radio.